When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Amused. I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, this is exciting. I know. I'm very excited about this person that we are covering today. Stani, do you like jazz music? Um, Yes, but I have to be in the right mood. Fair. And I'm not always in the right mood. It's kind of how I feel about country music, too. Like, I like it, but like in moderation. You know what I mean? When I was in school, I had to take jazz improv classes and I ended up doing like jazz arrangements and like composing like big band jazz stuff. So like I feel like I like writing and like playing and singing jazz maybe more than I like listening to it, if I'm being honest. Yeah. But I do like listening to it. Still. I feel like I have weird connotations to jazz music, but I feel like I need to overcome. Like what? I always think of like those kids in high school with like the fedora and like the striped shirt. And I'm sure every high school in America has one. Right. And then he played the saxophone and that was like his whole identity, you know? You know, yeah, I actually, yep. (laughs) I can picture it in my mind right now. So that's what jazz music always reminds me of like that. And then La La Land, which is kind of funny because like people, I don't know, have mixed feelings about La La Land as well. So I don't know. I I need to improve my relationship with jazz. That's fair. I mean, the truth is, is La La Land is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. Not because of the jazz music per se, (laughs) but I'm also not, I wouldn't consider myself a jazz musician. I just did a lot of it in college and really liked it. So That makes sense. I feel like I get your point, though, that like it might be more fun to create it than to listen to it. Because it's such a smart art. But at the same time, is it's like it's so much about like feeling the music, right? Like it shouldn't like it. It can't be too technical. But at the same time, it is so technical that it it just intrigues my brain. and I love it. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. I'm excited to hear about this too, because um, the person you're covering, she was in the More Than Amuse book too, right? Yes, that's what, and that's how I honestly was introduced to her, which is crazy because I guess I never did any like jazz history class when I was in college, but you know, I did do a lot of stuff and like the fact that this name really never came up was surprising to me. And so, yeah, when we were reading the More Than Amuse book is when I first got introduced to this Lil Harden Armstrong and or just Lil Harden of course and yeah it was kind of mind-blowing if I'm being honest because I was like obviously I know who Louis Armstrong is everyone knows who Louis Armstrong is I knew who Louis Armstrong was in elementary school 
Yeah, we all do. Yeah. Like, like we all learned the words to what a wonderful world to like mm-hmm. sing it or something or whatever, you and know, it like was everyone. The Louis Armstrong version. Yeah. Everyone yeah. knows who Louis Armstrong is. Exactly. Like one of the icons, one of the greats where I teach voice lessons, they have like themed rooms that are based on different artists. I'm in the Louis Armstrong room. So like I am surrounded by pictures of Louis Armstrong and by his quotes like two times a week. So wow, I know. But like it just proves like he's an icon, but I had never really known his story. So with that, I really never knew about his wife or his second wife. Well, I'm just going to give a very brief state of the arts. Honestly, I want to do a whole episode in the future on like the women in early jazz. So listeners, if that's something you'd be interested in, let me know because I I like I put off when we were recording this episode because I started like hitting the tip of the iceberg of just women in jazz. But then I had to be like, okay, okay. This is on this episode's only about Lil Hardin. So we're gonna take a step back, but it made me really want to do a future episode. So no, we totally should. Like I'm interested in it. It and is you're interested cool. in it. And mm-hmm. I think that means that other people will be interested. <laughs> exactly. That's, oh, yeah. that's the hope. Uh-huh. So very briefly, though, is like, you know, early 1900s in Chicago is where this takes place, right? It's where Louis rose to fame. It's where Lil Hardin was at this time. And um, I just have a couple quotes. There's actually a documentary called Girls in the Band that highlights women in you know, the jazz periods. And there's a couple quotes that I just wanted to provide as a bit of a state of the arts from different women who were musicians at the time. And these came from this documentary. The first one says, the guys can have white hair and glasses and weigh 300 pounds, but if they can play, great. The girls, they want you to look like a bunch of young starlets. Um, And then another one says, the things that they put us on the things that they put on us were unbelievable such as flouncy pink dresses designed to present the wares as freely objects of desire rather than the formidable artists they were and reading in the more than amused book the chapter about Lillian and also just with what you can find about her it's kind of like they expected the women to you know be the very pretty frilly things but yet there would also be stereotypes of their playing of kind of like oh like are they going to play feminine or are they going to be able to perform like one of the boys right and so if you were going to be a woman player you had to make sure that your playing was quote-unquote masculine enough you know just things like that there's so much more and I want to talk about it in the future but just very brief you know that was kind of what it was like I guess to be a woman jazz musician one quick question where can you watch the girls in the band documentary you can rent it on Amazon which I'm sure it will be very good I have every intention of renting it at one point I mean it got a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes so there you go there we go critics have talked they like it they like it you can also rent it on YouTube. So it looks like it's available to rent just various places, I think. Yeah. So check that out. It sounds like it was really interesting. I read just an article about it. Um, and yeah, it definitely intrigued me. So check it out. Anyways. Okay. So diving into Lillian, Lillian Harden. So 
Just as a brief summary, she was a jazz pianist, composer, arranger, singer, and band leader. She was the second wife of Louis Armstrong, with whom she collaborated on many of the recordings in 1920. This is a quote, actually, from the that article I read about the girls in the band, which specifically talks about um, Lil Hardin. I just wanted to read this as kind of like a precursor to everything. It says, the girls in the band takes a while to get around to Lil Hardin, Louis Armstrong's second wife, but she was integral in the revolutionary music he made in Chicago in the 1920s, widely acknowledged as laying much of the groundwork for the art of jazz improvisation. Only con connoisseurs remember her today but one can reasonably question whether armstrong to this day the face of music around the world would have reached the creative and commercial heights that he did as soon as he did without her and like honestly there's a pretty direct argument for it like it doesn't take like much speculating of like well maybe she did like no she was truly integral in helping him take steps in his career that pushed him to where he needed to be and even just like encouraging him and like noticing something within him and I want to be careful with this of not like justifying who she was because of her husband you know and a lot of the information about her there isn't tons of about herself and I'll actually talk about why um at the end of the episode a lot of the information is pretty much like how she can relate to louis story so you know like I said, i'm trying to walk that line here as far as like focusing on her as an individual but at the same time it is so interesting because like we talked about like everybody knows who louis armstrong was and the fact that like his success is so directly affected because of this woman that was in his life for a period of time like it just it can't be ignored so yeah no I think I even remember that from the book didn't they talk about how like she basically was his main like marketer and promoter Mm -hmm. and everything too yeah Yeah. exactly okay so her early life so she was born Lillian Hardin and she was born in Memphis Tennessee where she grew up in a household with her of course her mother but also in her grandma with her grandmother whose name was Priscilla Martin, who was a former slave in Mississippi. So just as far as like timeline goes here and how like distant that was, like her grandma was a former slave. During her very early years, she was introduced to music. She was taught hymns, spirituals, and classic music on the piano. Um, But she was very much drawn to popular music and of course, blues. She first received piano instruction from her third grade teacher, Violet White. Her mother then enrolled her in Mrs. Hook's School of Music. Um, And then she went on to Fisk University, which was a college for African-Americans at the time in Nashville. And she was taught, uh, quote unquote, a more acceptable approach to the instrument. So rather than focusing on jazz and popular music and things like that, she was taught kind of the more finer way of playing piano, which was, of course, like classical music. So it sounds like her mom was very particular about the way she was playing the piano and did not like Lil's interest in the popular music at the time. That's funny. I know. So she graduated from that university in 1917. And then in 1918, is she moved to Chicago with her mom and her stepfather. Um, by then, you know, she was obviously a very good pianist um, and was a very good sight reader, which helped her get a job at a music store where she worked as a sheet music demonstrator. So what I imagine happened is because recordings weren't so accessible 
um, if people wanted to play, you know, purchase sheet music to play at home, she would be the one who'd be like, oh, and this is what it sounds like. So you can decide if you want to purchase it or not. Wow, that's Which, a like, cool job. Makes sense because it's yeah. like, you know, if it wasn't so accessible, like that's they like couldn't pull up do. a YouTube video to be like, oh, I want to play that. Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. That's funny. The store though only paid her $3 a week, which was equivalent to about $52 a week in 2020 dollars. Um, or I guess 2021, the articles from 2020. So, but there was a band leader in town named Lawrence Duhay, I believe. And he offered her 22.50 a week compared to the $3. So, you know, obviously a huge raise. Yeah. But she knew that her mom would super disapprove of her working in like a cabaret type environment. Like she kind of hid it from her mom or at least was like, mom, this is how much you're like, we're getting paid. So that kind of like eventually won her mom over. I was like, she didn't turn it down, right? (laughs) No, no, no. She did not turn it down, but it was definitely like a contention. Fair enough. Um, Something that was funny though is there was definitely a difference in the way that the band members played and the way that she played just a different way of education and just a different way that they had grown up, you know, playing. And so like for an ex- example is she asked this group like, Oh, what key are we going to play in? And they remarked, we don't know what key when you hear two knocks start playing. But the thing was, is like with jazz, a lot of it was just like kind of like the same chords. So once she was able to use her ear and kind of figure out what key it was in, then she could follow along. But like that, that was so much of what that music was. It was just interacting with the other musicians around you. You know, it wasn't so formal in the way that she had been taught. I just thought that was like funny of like the ways, just different ways that musicians can approach music, you know? Yeah, that's cool. She stayed with this band and they moved up to playing at someplace called Dreamland, I believe where the principal entertainers were Alberta Hunter and Ollie Powers. And then there was a band that replaced this group named King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. And they replaced this at this thing. King Oliver asked Hardin if they would stay with him. So she was with them in 1921. And this is like when Louis Armstrong enters the chat. So she's playing with this band, King Oliver's. I'm going to actually read some expert excerpts, excuse me, from this More Than a Muse chapter. So this next little bit is from her. But it was in the same band that she met Louis Armstrong when he joined as their cornetist in 1922. I think that's how you say it. I'm not sure. At first, Hardin didn't really think anything of him, but she took notice when someone mentioned that Armstrong perhaps had a better technique than the band's leader, who is that Oliver. Apparently in recording sessions, the men in the band would place Armstrong kind of at the back, afraid that he would kind of steal the show. But she like took pity on the fact that he was being bullied basically by this group and she became sort of a mentor for him. At the time, she was 24, but was like a very seasoned musician and was like used to dealing with the politics of like a big band. So she went above and beyond she made the effort to teach him how to read music she brought him out shopping for new clothes and eventually they quote got to be sweethearts um they were both still married at the time but then once they got divorced that's when they got together 
So I don't know how much it overlapped. I don't know. <laughs> don't fall in love with people who are married. Yeah, don't do that. But she recognized the difference in Armstrong's technique before he could see it for himself. Um, and this is a quote. It said, he had the most beautiful shrill whistle and all those riffs that he had later made his music. Such beautiful riffs and runs and trills and things, you know. And I said, maybe someday that guy will play like that. You never know when you're crazy the right way, huh? So I love that. I know. And I love that. Like, you never know when you're crazy the right way, because it's just, it's yeah. true. Like it's crazy and bad until someone realizes that they like it. And then mm-hmm. you're an innovator. Right. <laughs> and because of her encouragement, Armstrong eventually kind of left that King Oliver band um, because he was the one who was, you know, King Oliver is the one who had the band. So he was the leader of it. He was the soloist of it. Um, he, she's the one who persuaded him to break away because she was like your second chair. You deserve to be first. Um, she was the one who encouraged him to move to New York and try his luck in Fletcher Henderson's band. And she was the one who convinced him a year later into heading back to Chicago where at long last, that's kind of like when he became the star he was. Um, I really love this anecdote that was in the more than amused book. So she used her clout at the Dreamline Cafe. She got him a job playing solo for $75 a week. And she convinced the owner, Bill Bottoms, to put a sign saying world's greatest trumpet player out front. And and then this is and then when Bottoms, he pointed out to her like nobody had a clue who this guy was. She told him, never mind about him. They know me. So they'll come in. Wow. Which is just like, first off, awesome self-awareness. That she's yeah. Like, yeah, I know where who I am. I know where I fit in with this community and I know that they trust me and trust me about this guy. You know, like that yeah. seems like that's the attitude where she's like, I know, like, I just know for certainty that he's great. But also like it goes to show like she was very successful on her own right. She was by no means like writing his coattails. I mean, he, he was writing hers, right? Like, yeah. That's, that's what was happening. So that's just crazy. really cool. Shortly after, there was a band that was formed where Armstrong was the, the star of it. Um, it was called the Hot Five. Hardin was at the piano, Johnny St. Sear on the banjo, Kid Ari on trombone, and Johnny Dodds on clarinet. The group recorded a series of releases, actually, for OK Records. So this group was very successful together. Something, um, just kind of a side note as far as, like, maybe why she didn't get as much recognition. Of course, you know, there is a you know perhaps sexist reason for it right she was a woman in a very very male dominated sphere but another like thing that does play a pretty large part in this is just the fact that it wasn't very common for a pianist to be the star the pianist oftentimes provides the foundation and it's within the rhythm section of a band the star is going to be the singer's the trumpet players, the clarinet players, you know, the people who are doing a lot of that solo work. And so, you know, while I'm sure what I know, there's a lot of things for her just being a woman that prevented her from maybe being fully recognized as far as like history goes and, you know, kind of went when left. It is, it's just important to recognize that like it kind of was not her fault for choosing that instrument, but it was just like kind of the culture surrounding, you know, no, that, that makes sense. The, the music, the, you know, what they emphasized and cared about. Their marriage and musical partnership began to come apart in the 30s. Um, Louis was on the road almost every night of the year, took a toll on their home life. 
pretty sure he had an affair with someone. So, but she continued to have a very rich career in music after they separated in 19, well, they separated in 1931, finally got divorced in 1938. She was continued to be billed as Mrs. Louis Armstrong, um, capitalizing, of course, on that popularity. Um, It's funny, too, because it like, I feel like it totally depends on, uh, like, on who is writing the story because it's like in like on wikipedia just what i you know first checked for quick reference it was like she continued to do it as mrs thing because she knew it would draw a crowd and also it said that they separated because of lil hardin's like pretension and maybe her wanting a finer lifestyle than louis but if you read the perspective in more than amuse it was like no her like booking agency was the one who pushed it to be like it to be mrs louis armstrong so i don't really know what's true i don't know how much of a personal choice she had in that if she was just being smart and realized that that would give her more of a window in like i said it's just funny how different things you can tell who writers are fans of sometimes, that's all. I mean, I am not going to um, discredit Wikipedia a ton, but I mean, it is a lot more open source and opinion-based than I think the research that went into the book is. <laughs> so Yes, exactly. <laughs> we could probably trust the research of the book a little bit more, but yeah. yeah like Wikipedia that- is a great quick reference point, but. <laughs> but she was very successful on her own right. Um, she led an all-girl orchestra group that broadcasted on the NBC radio network, um, and she had consistent recording work, whether as a soloist or an accompanist. Something that I thought was funny, which was in the More Than Amuse book that she mentioned, was that maybe Lil Hardin had a little bit of sexist attitudes towards women herself, where she felt like the women in the group didn't play like the men did, and they were a little bit too fragile in their approach on music, so... I think, I don't know, I just think that's kind of something funny to know, maybe, but. That's actually really interesting, because I feel like that could be, like, a really common problem. Like, if you happen to be a woman Mm -hmm. who's succeeding within the field, you could start to criticize other women for not doing what you're doing, because you're doing Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, that's a really I feel like that's a pretty common thing that can happen, where it's, like, Mm -hmm. I was able to do it by doing it the way that the man do the men do so if you're not doing it then you're lesser Mm -hmm. and also like if you surround yourself with other men who are talking about women that certain way you know maybe you think of yourself as the exception yeah definitely but I know that that's like a major problem in feminism I think I've even heard of it before where you start to view yourself as like you said the exception to the rule rather than Mm -hmm. looking at the rule and going no the rule's stupid yeah that rule sucks (laughs) how about we change that that rule for everyone else too yeah so no I can definitely like see how that would happen and Mm -hmm. yeah another fault in the system exactly She also appeared in several Broadway shows um, as their pianist, and she made a series of vocal sides for Decca Records. So I think she also did work as a singer, um, not just a pianist, though, of course, her focus was piano. What I thought was so crazy, though, is despite her being pretty successful as a singer and as a pianist, as a soloist, uh, by the 1940s, she decided that she'd had enough of the music business, and she actually enrolled at a school to become a tailor. 
<laughs> and for her graduation project, she actually designed and made a tuxedo for Armstrong, Louis Armstrong. And the tux, along with several other creations, was presented at a New York cocktail party to like a good amount, like a, to a prestigious group of people. And then it was at this occasion that she asked, she was asked to play the piano. And apparently she said that that's when I knew I would never be able to leave the music business. So she tried to leave it. So I'm sure there was like, I mean, I'm sure I know the music business is toxic. Right. And I'm sure for who she was as like a black woman at that time, like I'm sure she was getting just the worst of it. Mm. So I love that she like tried to leave it and then was like, ugh, but I love it too much. (laughs) Something that's crazy, though, is she Armstrong actually wore the tux that Hardin made for him and she continued to be a tailor. But then that became only like a special thing and like kind of more of a temporary thing. And then the music business was like always back to her main thing. So I thought that was like a random interesting thing that she went and learned how to do that and attempt to get out of it. It's cool. Love it though. Mm-hmm. Other forms of artistic expression. It's healthy. Exactly. I think so too. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Okay, so today I am going to be spotlighting Adeline, Adeline Wang. Um, her Instagram is just by Adeline Wang, E-Y-A-D-E-L-I-N-E Wang, W-A-N-G. She is a punch needle maker Ooh. in San Francisco. And also, by the way, she is now accepting custom orders for abstract wall art. So this is honestly like something that like an art style, I guess I kind of forgot of. Like, I don't know if this is exact. It's not exactly what it is. But what it makes me think of is like, do you know those like little rugs that you would like get from the craft store as a kid with like the little like needle thing like mm-hmm. with the hook and needle? Yeah. Yeah. That's like what it looks like, except I know that's not exactly how she does it yeah that's like diminishing it to like children's work which I don't want to do no you're fine I think they even have kids like punch needle kits obviously she's doing it at like a level beyond that but punch needling from what I know is like it's one of those things that like it's easy to pick up but like hard to be really really good at does that make sense yeah totally Mm -hmm. I think what you do is like you put the thread in the thing and then you literally like it's exactly what it says you like punch it through the fabric so you're literally just like stabbing fabric oh and and then like by doing something specific to like yeah knot it or I don't know exactly how it works it's very like it's like it looks so simple like I've seen people do it and they literally are just like punching the fabric with the little needle uh-huh. but like there's got to be more to it right I don't know <laughs> I mean yeah there, I, I imagine <laughs> but I know that it's one of those things where like the back looks completely different from the front somehow so like if you flip it over mm-hmm. like people have done reveals on TikTok where they like show the back side and then they like flip it and it's like That's magnificent cool. so I don't know that is cool yeah she has tons of really cool things like on her Instagram page, it like has her um, like pillows, chairs, like she has stuff on Etsy that you can just get, which are, I don't know, they're honestly amazing. It's a lot of patterns that you could get from her too, which is also cool. I'm obsessed with the tiger. Yeah, right. You can get that. Yeah. You can get that. Um, What's it called? That pattern from her. That's amazing. 
Um, she also just has a website where you can just purchase the, her artwork. And like I said, she does do customs, which is really cool. Man, this is amazing. Yeah, so cool. The art punch, that she does. Punch needling and felting are two things that I'm constantly mystified by because I feel like oh, it's a yeah. lot of stabbing, but then somehow it, like, it magically becomes so cool. something. Like, yeah. I don't understand entirely how it works, but it's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. Cool. Who do you spotlight in? Cool. Okay. <laughs> I am obsessed with this account. <laughs> and I only found it this week through an Instagram ad, which is so funny. Like, I am so susceptible to those things when it comes from, like, creators and not products. I, like, click on them all the time. So her name is Caro, um, C-A-R-O, Claire Burke, and you're going to love this. She writes short stories based on songs. Okay. And she started out with all the Taylor Swift songs. Oh, so I'm sold. Yes. So the problem is, is that obviously, like, she's writing stories, so they're, they're not free, um, and I haven't bought one yet, so I haven't read them, but I've read the little, like, she has some, like, sneak peeks of some of them. Ooh, okay, hold on. You can go join her Patreon, too. Yes. So that's what I was going to say. Like, if you want to pay, then you can join her Patreon, and I think $4 there is- $4 a month, you can read yeah. her stuff. $4 a month, you get to read the newest ones, and she doesn't have her backlog available other than, like, in a- separate like purchase thing let me find it and it's like well, what i love is all of her patreon levels it's the fearless album the red album yep. the reputation the 1989 <laughs> like i'm obsessed and if you click on like the cover stories like by individual ones she has like the august collection so she has like betty august and cardigan together for no twelve dollars and fifty cents you get three stories or she has like State of Grace for only $3.50. So you can like buy the individual ones too when she puts them up. And her entire backlog, like her full collection of cover stories is titled Cruel Summer and it's $88. No way. Okay. Yeah. But I also am loving too, like she has a, um, just an Instagram reel of a book recommendation for every Taylor Swift album. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I love, okay. I love when people can make money as an artist in like such creative ways like this. I know. Like the fact I was that like obsessed. this is lucrative and that it's so good that people would be willing to like buy this from her. Like I'm thrilled for her. Like that's amazing. Yeah. And she also she teaches like um one of her higher level Patreon classes is on like a writing short stories from like other inspiration and stuff like that. So like if you cool. actually wanted to like learn how to do it, then it's one of her higher level like Patreon tiers. Oh my goodness. So, but yeah, I'm, I really want to get one. I just, I'm probably going to buy the trilogy. <gasps> For Betty Cardigan in August? Yeah. <gasps> I think I'm like, going to have to. And it's so cool. So yeah, um, I know like she just said lately, she's not going to release the free ones on Instagram, but in the past she has like Every Sunday, she'd put the story up for the 24 hours on her Instagram stories that she was releasing so that you could read it for free mm. for that 24 hours. So she might come back with that again in the future, but who knows? So just an incredible way to like read a short story based on a, a song. Like, I think that's such a cool idea. And she has done other ones besides just Taylor Swift songs. Like there are others. 
mm-hmm. as well. She just obviously prefers the Taylor Swift ones. She's done yes. a lot of those. So, uh, I just think people are so cool with the things that they do. I know. Doesn't it blow your mind sometimes? You're like, how yes. did someone ever think of that? <laughs> like, <laughs> All right. Now back to the show. She also had occasional tours in France as a solo artist, uh, but she mainly played in and around Chicago, you know, pretty regularly, Yeah, which makes sense. Like, I feel like that's like the, not the birthplace of jazz, but like that was definitely the jazz epicenter. So it was like the made hub. sense that she kept going there. Exactly. It might've even been the birthplace of jazz. What, what happened is it's like all of these musicians kind of migrated well, not just musicians, all of these people migrated from Southern states mm. into Northern states and Chicago kind of became a place that a lot of them went. Yeah. And um, so with that came a lot of like New Orleans style jazz that they mm. all brought to Chicago. And oh. there was a bunch of different cultures coming in into Chicago and they all played together. That makes sense. The I forgot about New Orleans. Yeah, New Orleans is definitely hub. more of the yeah, like quote unquote birthplace of jazz, I guess you would say. But Chicago became the scene because everyone went there. Oh yeah, one crazy thing. This is also I'm just gonna read this directly from the More Than Amuse book. So though her name was attached a dozen of Hot Five recordings as a composer, which was the group that she was in with Louie. Um, She didn't have the profile for the public to recognize her as the mind behind the songs. It didn't help that Armstrong and Hardin entered a legal battle over the copyright to strut in with some barbecue, one of his most famous recordings. Hardin won the case and is credited as as composer, but some Armstrong experts still try to undermine her efforts by speculating that it was his up until 1967. The hot trumpet player was insisting that he came up with the idea for the song while eating barbecue ribs with Zuddy Singleton. So that's like an added thing is that there was this like legal battle between who actually had come up with this song. Apparently though, legal riffs aside, she never like resented her ex-husband, which I guess is good. At the, this is like kind of crazy circumstances for the end of her life. But so in July of 1971, Louis Armstrong died. Um, and then a month later, in August of 1971, she played at his memorial concert in Chicago. So, like, that was, you know, obviously there was no resentment. She was willing to play at that memorial thing. What happened was she actually collapsed in the middle of her song and ended up dying of a heart attack later that day. So she died very, very quickly after him what i thought was interesting is in 1962 apparently she began working on an autobiography with chris albertson but she had second thoughts because she would have to apparently reveal information that would be detrimental to armstrong's career so the project was put aside at the time however she had promised to tell it all after armstrong's death Oh, no. But the book was never finished. Okay, so after she died, they went back to her place. All of the manuscripts that were like the beginning stages of her autobiography and a lot of documents that had information about her personal life were missing. 
Uh, someone killed her. I, that, that's kind of what I think. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I just, I think that's fishy. Like, yeah. for one thing, someone absolutely stole those documents. Like, yeah. absolutely. Because they didn't want whatever she was going to say to soil his reputation. Yeah. I don't know if she would just be like, yeah, that was on me who taught him how to play music. And like, that was worried that that was going to come out. Or maybe more there's something about else. their relationship. But the thing is, like, she says that, well, I mean, I guess we don't know if she never resented him. But I feel like the fact that she's like, oh, I don't want to like ruin his career. So I'm not going to do it. But then also we don't know if she was actually like, oh, I don't want to, but yeah. she also performed at his memorial hospital. So I'm like, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if he's like actually like this horrible person, but I'm like, what are the chances a month after she collapsed in the middle of the song that she's playing at his memorial service that day, the documents go missing I feel like I yeah. didn't see anything on the internet speculating about if she actually died naturally. But as I was like, reading all these facts, no, I, didn't I thought this was like a major conspiracy theory. No. Okay. Unless I just wasn't, but everyone's like, yeah. And she later died of a heart attack. Hold on. I'm going to Google it. She collapsed at the memorial service. I'm sorry. That's the fishiest part. Surrounded by people who only want to remember Louis Armstrong in the best possible light. And she collapses and dies. Like, I'm, that yeah. sounds like well, murder. That's what, okay. Like I just Googled conspiracy, Lillian Harden death. And the top result is Lil Harden. The next article is from the New York times. Louis Armstrong's second wife, Lil Harden dies at tribute. Like, I'm not seeing anyone being like, yeah, maybe she didn't die. What? Um, there's one thing that just says that explains that after Harden's death, vultures made off with her personal effects, including letters, photos, and manuscripts of her autobiography. Like everyone knows that they were stolen. stolen. Did we just invent a conspiracy theory? I don't know. Like maybe there's stuff like, out there about this but like I feel like like the fact that like I had to google conspiracy and like on the main page there's not like a who really killed Lil Hart and Armstrong is like but I'm like it's so obvious that there's a conspiracy like yeah I just, like if I tell you that like oh yeah she purposely didn't publish it she knew it would ruin his life and then and here's the other thing too if she really didn't mysteriously die at his memorial was someone just like, oh, better take advantage of this opportunity to break into her house to steal yeah, everything. Maybe, but that's kind of a crazy coincidence like to just be prepared be for. Orchestrated. Because you can totally orchestrate a heart attack. I've seen enough yeah. through crime stuff. There's ways to make it look like a heart attack. And like the timing of her collapsing in the middle of her performance. That's the fishiest part. Service. It's at his memorial service. It doesn't like, I, I really, really think something happened here. Mm. And I don't know. I don't necessarily want to say like, so Louis Armstrong was probably this terrible, horrible person. I don't know. I don't think so. I hope not. No, but I don't think I do he was know a terrible that person. information he had would stain his legacy in a way yeah. that I think somebody wanted to kill her. If she was like worried about ruining his reputation by releasing it, then like 
it doesn't even necessarily have to be like awful dirt. Like it's not like he killed someone, but like I can tell you as someone who is going through, gone through a divorce that like you could pretty easily ruin someone's reputation with stuff like if you wanted to. That's true. Like I have someone (laughs) in my life that I like have this like weird satisfaction of like you know, I could ruin his life. Like I yeah. could, I have so much dirt on this person. I'm not going to, but I could. exactly. And so I think it's just kind of one of those things. Like, I feel like if you know someone intimately enough, like within a relationship and they've even messed up like once or twice, or then if, you like, know it was an unhealthy them. relationship. Yeah. Then like, you could be yeah. like, Hey everyone, this is what that was like. Exactly. So it's just kind of like, I don't know. It didn't even necessarily have to be anything like horrifically bad, but it was, like anything, yeah, could. anything. Yeah. And, and like I said, maybe like it would have really just been about how much of a role she played in his career becoming something. And maybe at the time that wasn't common knowledge and they were really worried about the discrediting him. I am not sure, but oh, am I curious and like I'm kind of this makes me want to so, yeah, do like I a whole we deep dive conspiracy <laughs> I know we need to like okay I did know, they do so, an obituary like, let's climb it up not an obituary did they do an autopsy I know who was benefiting from the money after like who got the name and money like, legacy let's start Louis. playing true crime detectives internet sleuths and uncover who her real murderer is because I'm shocked that no one's looked at all these facts and been like, oh yeah, that's fine. There's nothing fishy yeah. going on here. Especially with like how many true crime podcasts there are out there and how many like conspiracies they look into until like people's deaths. Like has no one thought like, oh, that's kind of a little suspicious. Yeah. I mean, did we accidentally just become a true crime podcast? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, wait for October and then we'll see. It's <laughs> true. Our October episodes are set to be spooky. <laughs> So this is a nice little precursor. We're winding up to what's coming. We're winding up. So, oh my gosh, that's insane though. I know. So that's the end of her life. Uh, One nice thing to end on is just, this is from the very last paragraph from More Than a Muse. Um, But she says, on the Hear Me Talking to You tapes recorded four years before that concert where she ended up passing away, You can hear the jazz woman looking back with a kind of ecstatic fondness on her story. She doesn't get the credit she deserves as a songwriter and composer today, but Hardin was well aware of her of her importance in jazz history. Strutting with some barbecue. That's why I don't have to work too much, she said, and I'm still strutting. So like she definitely got paid her royalties. She knew she was a big deal. And I just like love that of like that satisfaction of like she wasn't getting the credit and recognition she deserved as a songwriter and composer yet she was just so fully aware of what she did it's it's, that's a good thing at least I just hate that I just like I said I just I'm like we've unpacked something here and no one's talking about it and I feel weird about it that's all it's also just like a major bummer like forget all the like maybe dirt on Louis Armstrong that there possibly could have been but also just like the details into her life and like what yes. it was like being a woman in jazz in that era and everything else that we miss out on because we didn't get that autobiography. One, yes. Thank you for bringing that up because that was my, 
original point. And then as I was like literally in the moment of me telling you, I was like, wait a minute, something's fishy here. <laughs> but yes, like it, it is very sad because the reason why we don't know a ton about her is because of those facts that those like intimate documents and writings about her life are gone. Um, and, and that's, like I said, why we really know a lot about her through her relation to Louis Armstrong, because mm-hmm. like, that's what was going on in her life. You know, like that's what yeah. was going on in his life. We all know tons about him now. So like people yeah, were I, paying attention to him. So in return, they paid a little bit more attention, more to, attention her. to her. Yeah. But yeah. it's like, there's probably so much more to her story and like so many other amazing things that she did once they had no longer no, once they were lo- no longer married that it's like mm-hmm. uh, like what cool stories could have we gotten her and how much more could we know about her had somebody yeah. not stolen those things after yeah. she passed away that's so sad another one to add to the list of people I want to interview <laughs> yeah I know now I like when I am dead mm-hmm. in the afterlife I'm I'm gonna find her and I'm gonna be like okay you gotta like spill the tea, yeah. ma'am. Like that, me continuing to work even after I die yeah. <laughs> and want to interview everyone that we talked about. We're just like maintaining more than amuse as ghosts. It's fine. Yeah. Continuing passion projects after death. I would like to think that our souls would want to continue doing this. Yeah. I mean, if it's this important to us now, don't you think it comes from something deeper? I don't know. We could get into a whole philosophical talk (laughs) about that. Yes. But anyways, this is Lil Harden and just a crazy story. Crazy that, you know, she literally was the catalyst and the reason why a star was born. Like, it's like a star is born, the movie, but let's switch gender roles. Yeah. And that's, I mean, minus the tragic ending, but you know what I mean? Like she was the one who built him up and they separated after a couple of years, but even, you know, afterwards, they obviously still really admired, um, each other's musicianship, which I think is really cool. I don't know why it just reminded me of this. He went like minus the tragic ending. And I was like, yeah, but with like a twist of true crime. And then I thought about the Bob Ross documentary. Have you watched that yet? No, I haven't yet. Is it good? It's really good. I watched it today and my family was like walking in and out of the room and they were like, wait, what? Like what happened to Bob Ross? Maybe I'll go watch that with Jordan right now after this. So highly recommend. I know it's not about like a female artist, but guys like Bob Ross is one of those men that like when we say we hate all men, like he is not one of them. So bless little Bob Bob Ross Ross and his happy little trees and happy little clouds. Man. Okay. Good to know. I'm going to go watch that. It was very interesting. So I feel like this would be the same thing. Like documentary comes out on Little Harden and then it's like with a twist of true crime (laughs) that no one's talked about before apparently. To close real quick, I wanted to read something that Louis Armstrong wrote about her or said about her. So he said she was the best. She would give out with that good old New Orleans four beat, which a lot of the northern piano players couldn't do to save their lives. And for a woman, there are and for a woman, there are very few men piano players who can swing as good as Lil. And I'm not just saying this because I was married to her. So even after they were married. He was still like, no, she was one of the best. And it's and it's not just like she was a woman. She was one of the best players I have I've known, which I thought was at least nice that they obviously respected them, respected each other 
as musicians. They had like a really big mutual respect for each other's talents. And yes. That's a really cool. And that's thing. pretty evident. I will say, as for usual, last month we were doing a giveaway of we would give you a book if you shared about us. This is going to be an ongoing thing, right? Yes, it is. Yes. Cool. It's going to be something that we're doing every month. So if you share our podcast to your Instagram stories and just tag us in it, that way we can know and we can, you know, add you to our list. Um, the more times you share us, the more entries you get in. So that's And then you awesome. get a book. Then you'll get our book of the month, which is... The Linda Nachlin Reader, right? Yes, which is gonna, which is a good one to own if you are interested in it's women a in the arts. Big one, by the way. Yes, just a warning. <laughs> it's not like, the easy reads that we've had in the past. No, I feel like the past two that we gave away were very easy reads. They're like just over two hundred pages, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is for sure like a four hundred page book. But it has a lot of pictures in it, and it's actually, like, really cool. So if you're, like, really interested in women's art history, I feel like this is, like, visual arts history. Sorry. Sorry Mm -hmm. to the musicians out there. But if you are interested in that, then that is something, like, this would be a great, great place to start. So share us, share your favorite episode. It doesn't have to be an episode that comes out this month. But if you share it, you'll get added to it. And then at the end of September, we'll DM you if you won. So shout out to our August winners. Which was oh, I know. Amanda and, and Maria. And Maria. Thank you so much, you guys, for listening. We love you. Yes. We love everyone who listens. We're so glad to have all of you here and mm-hmm. even more of you every time, which is just great. It is so, great. Yeah, it is. We'd keep doing it even if no one is listening, but it's nice to know that there's other people who like learning about who all like this it. as much as we do. So thank you. Yes. Follow us on Instagram if you want to see like more quotes, photos, music samples, all that stuff from whoever we cover. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also if you want to rate and review, that would be wonderful just so more people can find us. Um, One of the ways people apparently have been finding us is just through like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which is amazing. So Mm -hmm. ratings and reviews just help bump that up a little bit more. 100%. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. We will catch you next week. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. 
MyPatriotSupply.com.